Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of fiction, nonfiction, and graphic novels. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly, and today I'm speaking with Ted Alvarez, whose book, The Survival Hacker's Handbook, is published by Falcon, an imprint of Roman and Littlefield, and is the sponsor of today's podcast. Hello, Ted. So glad to talk to you today. Glad to be here. So your book's title is The Survival Hacker's Handbook, How to Survive with Just About Anything. Now, you're uh, the Northwest editor of Backpackers Magazine. What made you decide to write this book? This book actually came out of a column that I wrote several years ago for Backpacker. Um, ran for maybe two or three years, I want to guess, between 2011 and 2013. Um, this column was called uh, Survival Lab. And the point of it was this was kind of the time where Bear Grylls uh, from Man vs. Wild and Les Stroud for Survivor Man, like a lot of survival sort of uh, skills started to enter the popular imagination. And that's something that Backpacker has always covered. Um, but they wanted a column that was basically like survival for the rest of us because you see these guys go into the woods and they're extremely competent at finding food and starting fire. So things like that. Uh, but there's like some sensationalization there and, and uh, sensationalism there. And, and even later, I believe it, it came out, you know, that Bear Grylls in particular, you know, would fake things for the camera, which is very understandable. But the whole point of it was if you're the average Jane or Joe who spends time in the wilderness and wants to know what are the absolute easiest ways to survive for, you know, the people who are, who have not spent years training, what are the best methods? And so they would send me out and try and find the best ways to make fire, try and find ways to procure water where there wasn't any. And, um, kind of through bumbling through that process, uh, misadventures in survival, uh, I, I would I would figure those things out. And so the idea came up several years later to compile those into a book and kind of expand on them. So um, yeah, that's that's where the impetus came from. And, and I was really excited to, to revisit it and kind of get back out there. So how did you get tapped for this? Uh, did they just know that you're someone who uh, enjoys finding himself every once in a while in the woods without a backpack without a tent or without anything to make a fire with? Yeah, I when I started Survival Lab or, or when they approached me with the idea, uh, I think it was um I'd kind of cultivated a reputation at Backpacker of being the guy who you know, send him out, send Ted out somewhere and something ridiculous will probably happen to to him. Like and and I I gained that reputation when I started at Backpacker uh because I was an intern and and willing to do anything to prove to the magazine that um that that I was their guy. So they would do things like, you know, for a bear safety video, we obviously couldn't get a real bear to demonstrate, so they would ask Ted the intern to get into a bear suit and you know then they would throw rocks at me and I'd have to you know demonstrate how a bear would attack a person or we're going to test uh we're going to test sleeping bags in a industrial refrigerator put Ted inside a sleeping bag and so uh, inside of an industrial fridge and so I just became that kind of guy who would who would sort of do those gonzo tests and um I I think that's where the idea came from I think it's made it's just like if we ask Ted to do it he's probably not going to say no so let's <laughs> let's send Ted into the desert with no water and see what happens um and yeah and the point I think was also that I I at the time did not 
have uh, very many survival skills. So the whole point was not to be somebody, someone who's an average backpacker, outdoors person, but, you know, has not spent forever learning how to build friction fires with sticks, you know, just to see how difficult it would be. Um, the, the, the cool thing is that in the interim, I've worked on more survival stories and, and through the course of the column and also working with lots of like really great experts who are generous enough to share their time and expertise, I've gained enough experience to be decent at this stuff. So by the time it came time to do the book, I feel like I had more of a knowledge base to work from. And it wasn't, it wasn't purely the, here's how an idiot does it. But, you know, but I had the experience of, oh, I know what it's like to feel like an idiot doing this stuff. So it, it would maybe help me in explaining and, and making these topics kind of accessible. Well, it sounds great. So, so you've got nine chapters here. And the yeah. first one is shelter, which you say is the uh, quote unquote, the first line of defense. I'm going to ask a few questions and like put in situations. So uh, uh, what is the first thing, you know, you're hiking in the woods, it's, mm-hmm. you're, you're a little bit later than you thought, you don't have shelter. What, what do you do? What's the first thing you look for? The first thing you look for, you know, if you're going to overnight in a place, I mean, you, you really want to make sure that you don't have a safe way back. If you're, if you're properly equipped and a lot of these rules are, are really, you should never have to use this book typically if you're doing everything right. But you know, sometimes things happen. So ideally you would have a headlamp with you. You would have a map. You would know where you're going, etc. Um, but if if you if you don't have this, if you don't have a means to get back to your car and your civilization, um, and especially if you're lost, probably the first thing to do is to stay put. You you hear this a bunch, and it's it's true. Um, continual movement will just get you more lost. Um, is that true? Yeah, it, it, it's true. People tend to move in circles even. And, and so we just orient ourselves in circles, whether we know that we're doing that or not. And a lot of times when people get lost, um, they'll panic and, um, and they'll, they'll take off. And in the process, they'll be unable to find either the trail that they were on. They'll just get farther and farther away from the trail. Um, it's, it's really interesting if you look at survival statistics children under the age of five tend to do really well because they they don't know how to panic yet. So they tend to stay put if they don't know where they're going. They tend to rest when they're tired. They don't, they're not as overtaken by some of those things. Um, and then as you get older than that, you know, and you learn what to be afraid of, it, it gets a lot easier to get yourself lost. So if, if you are in a situation where you cannot find your way back and you know you're going to overnight, um, you know, and shelter becomes a real option. I think your first best line of defense is to look for purpose built shelters, either a cave, I mean, a, a shelter that already exists in the environment, a cave, um, you know, you can often find just from rain. If, if you're not really worried about cold, you can, um, find, uh, little hollows underneath evergreen trees that are actually quite protected and can be quite warm. Um, you know, even like little cutout embankments. There, there are lots of, uh, any place that you can find a nook to protect yourself under a rock without you having to expend the extra energy to build a shelter is probably your best bet. Um, but if that's not around or if you think it is going to be getting really cold and that's something that you need to worry about, the simplest way to protect yourself is uh, what's called a um, basically a debris hut or, um, or a leaf bed. And you can 
pile foliage or pine bows and things like that, almost to create like a giant mattress, almost like a leaf pile you'd see in the yard. You'll need it to be probably two or three times bigger than you think it you would need, like, you know, maybe two to three feet tall because it'll compress under your weight. But if you get enough of that, you can just lie down on that debris bed and then pull the debris over yourself and it will actually insulate you. It's it's actually protective. It's crude and like a little bit pokey, but it's it's frankly much more efficient than, you know, building a lean-to or a teepee or something like that. Right. Do you cover different terrains? I mean, like, you know, when we think about uh, backpacking, we, we think through forests or through woods. What about, well, let's say, deserts? Yeah, there's a bunch of different terrains in here that we cover. And um, yeah, obviously, there's a lot of great backpacking in mountains and forests, but there's a ton of it in deserts too, in swamps, coastal areas, and all of these different ecosystems will present unique challenges and unique opportunities. Obviously, in the desert, you know, water becomes an extreme concern in a way that you wouldn't have in most uh, most mountains. Um, so uh, yeah, th- there's a lot of difference actually between ecosystems and, and we do go into a little bit of, uh, even when it comes to like procuring food, for instance, it's going to be much different, uh, the things that you can rely on to eat or, or types of shelter that you can have are going to be very different in the desert than they are in the mountains, um, or, or the ocean. So we try to have a good mix of both. Um, I would say that like it tends to be more the, the chapters are designed in such a way that you you kind of like radiate outward in terms of importance like shelter is extremely important and fire is important and then water and so the water the water chapter is a uh, you know, pretty heavy on desert stuff. Because if you're in the desert, really, the things you're going to need most of all are water and protection from sun, you know, more than anything else. So, so yeah, there's a bunch of all kinds of varieties and, and uh, of ecosystems that we tackle. Next, we need heat. You're, you're in the woods. So is there any better way to make a fire than rub two sticks together? Or And, and if that's the best way, how, how do you do it? What do you, what do you look for? I, it's funny. I often tell people it because I, I have built a friction fire. Uh, it is not easy. Um, I will tell people that the, the best way is if you're going hiking, make sure like, do you have a lighter? Good. Now bring another lighter and now also bring a box of matches because those things, having backups and man-made ways to build fire are so much more efficient without practice. You can build a fire with friction sticks. You know, there's one method called the hand drill, which is where you're, you know, rubbing your hands together on a stick that's going straight down into a board. Another version is called a bow drill where you have a curved stick almost like a bow and arrow and um, you use that as kind of the fulcrum. But these techniques, while they all work, they they take they take weeks, you know, at at the at the quickest weeks to master and really more like months. So so you can do them and they're also highly dependent on the type of wood that you're surrounded by. So to be effective at those techniques requires a lot of practice. We have those in our book. We tell you what kind of woods to find. We tell you how to practice those techniques. And so if you are interested in those sort of primitive or traditional skills, you can pick up this book and learn how to do them and practice them on your own. And um, I am, I'm good friends. A good friend of mine is an instructor at a, at a wilderness skills school and he was an advisor for the book. And so he, 
helped, you know, ensure that our directions and instructions were clear. But the thing to stress most of all is that it's 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 very difficult to build a friction fire without practice. <laughs> That's what I figured. However, if you do find yourself without matches, you can do you can and you do have sun, for instance, you can use um, you know the lens of a camera uh, or you know or something like that. Any convex piece of glass, you can use that to focus the sun and and start a fire without too too much difficulty. Um, another, another sort of hacky way is if you're able to remove the battery from your camera, um, uh, or from a cell phone, obviously you wouldn't want to smash your cell phone to do this because your cell phone is probably your best chance at rescue, but, but, um, you can, you can usually use the battery and then, uh, like very thin wire if you have it, um, to, to, to spark a fire. So I'm going to give you a couple of hypotheticals. Uh, I'm say I'm taking a, uh, a walk, a nice fall walk in the Adirondacks or I say a hike, mm-hmm. uh, pretty high up in the mountains. I've been deep in thought, lost the uh, blaze. I can't quite find where the trail is. A fog is starting to set in. What's the best thing to do? What time of day is it? It's uh, late afternoon. It's late afternoon. If you are, I'd say, if you have a reasonable chance of of um, getting back to the trailhead or back to your car, um, let's say you're not 20 miles out, you're six or seven miles out, and you're reasonably equipped with headlamps and and uh, and extra food and extra layers and all the things that you should have on really any hike. Um, the first thing to do would be to retrace your steps. You've lost the trail, but you can retrace your steps to some degree to see if you can find the direction that you were going. You do not, you don't want to press on for one, and um, and you don't want to strike out in another direction. If you have some intuition that it's over this ridge, you may or may not be wrong. You may or may not be right. You know, unless you are super familiar with the area and super adept at orienting yourself with a topo map. So retracing your steps is usually the first good procedure because a lot of people will press on forward just convinced that they can find the trail to complete the loop and then they get lost. But if you retrace your steps, I think that's that's your first best option. And if you don't find those steps and it's getting dark, that's the point at which you, you stay put. Especially if you have access to the trail. If you are if it's getting dark and you, you are relatively close to the trail and you don't want to get more lost. So I'd, I'd stay put if you can't find it find your way back after a short amount of time. All right. And say I'm hiking and I come across a, uh, let's say a black bear. Okay. This is again in New England. We've heard a lot of things on how to act, what to do. What, what is your recommendation? Depends on, again, it's situational. You already answered the first good question, which in the East, it's going to be a black bear. You luckily won't have to worry about the different behaviors of bears. Uh, in the West, your your activity around a black or a grizzly bear would be very different. But in this case, if it's a black bear, can I ask how far away are you from the bear? Uh, maybe about 20, 30 feet. And what's the ba- what is the bear doing? Is it just minding its own business? Minding its own business. Okay. The safest thing for you to do, especially if it's near the trail, is to observe it from afar. 20 to 30 feet is a little bit too close. Yeah. <laughs> but, if, but if it's minding its own business, you can just kind of slowly move back the way that you came. And um, if it notices you, you can kind of say in like a firm voice, hey, bear, hey, bear, how's it going, bear? You're basically letting it know where you are. There's no surprises. 
Um, and as long as you back away and kind of, it's probably safest to, to go back the direction that you came from rather than risk a closer encounter. Um, yeah, but I've, I've been 20 to 30 feet away from black bears before and walked past them or kind of bumbled into them and kept going and, and they've, they've left me alone. So as long as it's minding its own business, um, you're, you're probably pretty safe, but you'll, you'll want to let it know where you are, that you're no threat to it. And then, and then kind of retrace your steps, but without running. And, uh, let's just say, uh, uh, a snake I'm walking in, uh, the swamps of, of, or, or even just any kind of palmetto bush patch, uh, in Florida, which is where I grew up. And, um, Snakes, snakes and alligators, what to watch for, <laughs> what to do. I mean, I have an idea, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> snakes, you're just going to want to be like really, uh, really aware and, and, avo- and avoid them. You know, uh, obviously don't grab it, don't pick it up, uh, don't, don't mess with it in any way that, or, or molest it in a way that gives it an excuse to, to bite you. But, uh, you know, generally, if you keep your distance from a, from a snake, it's not, it's certainly not going to come after you, the that you're it's more afraid of you than than you are of it usually holds true with snakes what's interesting looking at this uh is is how low the actual numbers are of attacks and deaths i mean you think of these bears you know um or or alligators and in florida you you hear about alligator attacks but it says Mm -hmm. here there are usually seven per year and there's only been six deaths since uh 2008 yeah, the snakes a little bit higher. Twenty-two deaths since two thousand and eight, um, but still not what you would think of. Of like, it's twenty-two people versus how many people actually goes uh, uh, hiking in the woods. Yeah, it's pretty astonishing. I mean, I think there's something interesting about the fact that these are primal. We're so primally connected to these fears that they they loom so very large in the mind. Where you know every time. Uh, someone goes to Yellowstone or Glacier, or, or if they're asking me about Yellowstone or Glacier, their questions are inevitably about how to avoid being eaten by a bear or a mountain lion, when in reality, you know, the likelihood that they'll die on the road, you know, just driving is so much higher than than them even seeing a bear, you know. So it's, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating thing. I think it's just, these are like really primal fears that haven't, haven't, gone away and you know we've we're kind of conditioned in the back of our mind to be afraid of, of to be most afraid of things that can eat us where you know maybe we haven't evolved enough to understand that it's the the machines we build that are maybe more dangerous statistically well this looks like a solid book uh covering everything from splinting to how to get in the uh how to deal with a broken leg or broken limb while in the forest uh fishing so um this looks like a quite a uh, handbook. So thanks for uh, talking with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you audience for listening and joining us for the next PW LitCast. <laughs>